0: Coxey, Doctor Doug, and Ted JD on the Tarago bed. Fove's podcast. Welcome back to Foves are the best people, a podcast that reviews every song released by those Mornington Peninsula tunesmiths, the Foves. I'm your host, John. Now, look, we've never said the Foves are the only band of that name in the world. In fact are not even the only Fove's from Australia. Because our guest on today's episode was a band member of another Fove's from the 1960s. Yeah, that's right. The Cuban Missile Crisis, Crisis, The Beatles, Walking on the Moon, 60s. You might know him from Mondo Rock, Daddy Cool, or the legendary producer of Skyhooks. We have today Mr. Ross Duke-Wilson. Thanks for joining us, Ross.
1: Oh, thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, yeah, that no, was interesting to get the, the call and... Uh... <laughs> you know be reminded that uh, my first band the pink finks started out as the foves for a very brief period and I'll, I'll tell you all about that there's not much of a story to tell but i can tell it to you <laughs> oh. it led on, it led on to bigger things yeah. yes that's right
0: <laughs> i first came, i first found out about this i was reading um it was either Ian McFarlane's Encyclopedia or some old rock discography that had under Eagle, yeah, had under the Foes. It had two entries: yourself and my favourite band, mm-hmm. the Foves. So, yeah, I was I was quite surprised. How did you did did the audiences in your day, even the Foes didn't exist for a long time? Did they have difficulty in knowing how to pronounce the the word?
1: Well, that, the Foes,
0: the Foes, they didn't have
1: difficulty because we hardly had any audience. In fact, what happened was this: I went along to a local dance in a very, very small church hall in uh, Marriage Road in Brighton, up near the highway there. A uh, tiny little hall behind the church. Uh, that was put on by Keith Glass, who was uh, became... He, he had other bands later, like Campact and all sorts of things. But anyway, he, he had a band, and the new thing after the, after the Beatles was everyone started getting into the Rolling Stones, so he was playing like Rolling Stones songs with his band, The Rising Suns. And I went along then, took my harp along because I was getting pretty good at playing blues harp and sat in on a song just playing harp. And this before he'd been on, there was a little band on, The Foves. And uh, they were basically <laughs> playing instrumentals and they were very young. They were younger than me even. I was only like 15 or 16. And... Uh, mm mm-hmm. They, they were playing like Shadows stuff and, you know, uh, just instrumental Avengers. things. You know, I remember when, yeah, instrumentals were a thing for a while there. And um, mm-hmm. then after I'd played, they, and the Rising Suns had sort of finished, you know, everyone's milling around. And uh, they came up to me, and, and this little blonde guy whose name was Rick Dalton said to me, <laughs> We want to play music like that. And, you know, you play harp, can you sing? And I said, well, yeah, I can sing, actually. um, You know, not bad. Because uh, I'd been in, you know, choirs and and I know you sing around with pop music and all of that and and listening to the blues and the Stones and whatever. So I said, oh, we'll come down to uh, this guy's garage. This guy was Ross Hannaford, who was only about four foot tall at the time, <laughs> he was sort of round and fat and later became a, like six foot five or whatever, skinny guy. And he was the lead guitarist, right? So come to his place in South Road and uh, we'll have a jam. So I go there and these guys are there on a sad day over and they've already got a singer, another one of their mates. And so I get up and I blow a bit of harp and, and sing a, a stone song or a two. And suddenly he's out and I'm in. <laughs> so that was my first first lesson of the brutality of show business, you know. And anyway, they were calling themselves the Foves, even though they only played one or two gigs around the neighbourhood, you know, in schools and whatever. Do you know who came up with the name? Yeah, I think it was Ross Hannaford because he was already at like, I think it was like uh, just about to turn thirteen at the time, but he was already uh-huh. well into kind of art things. You know, he was always drawing stuff and that. And he was like, you know, and he, that was a, a thing he for forever in his life. You know, he was always torn yeah. torn a bit between will I be, you know, play the guitar all the time, or will I become a full time artist, that kind of thing. And he eventually reconciled it and do, did both. But he, he um, you know, uh-huh. he went off to art school and all that. But so he had some knowledge of what the foibles meant. And I'm going, what's that mean? You know, oh, well, this is his art movement means wild animals, you know, because they were very wild, what they did. I don't know, what was it, impressionistic or expressionistic? I don't know. And uh, and that was the Foeves. So, of course, I had to go look that up. But immediately they were like going, we need another name, you know, because people don't know what the Foeves is. They don't know what a Fauve is, you know. Yeah. That Immediately they had called themselves that. They found out people going, what's Foeves, <laughs> you know. So this is yeah. probably a, a problem that the uh, later latter-day Foves had as well. So uh, anyway, so we, we were mucking around with other names and we were going like, oh, well Colonial Boys. Ah, oh, damn, there's another band called that. Oh, let's do this and that. Anyway, so then we answered the, uh, how the Foves met their demise was this. We answered an ad that was in The Age, and I've still got it cut out somewhere, it said because mm-hmm. R&B – was sweeping over the teenage dancers. R&B was the new thing, you know, uh, post Beatles. Mm -hmm. Um, It said, R&B bands wanted, no experience necessary. And we went, that's us. That's us. That's us. Let's go. Let's go. You know, so we answered this ad and it was the two guys, Ian and Peter, and they said, we're running a dance down at um, uh, Rosebud over the Christmas holidays, which were looming. And uh, mm-hmm. we want you to play in the role in the Rising Suns and, and you, wh- whoever they get lay their hands on, basically that they didn't have to pay very much. <laughs> and yeah. so uh, we went, yep. oh, that sounds good. But meanwhile, we um, we 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 they said we've got you a gig for a Christmas gig, uh, and you got to go to this rehearsal over in in Footscray. So we rock over. It's going to be a charity thing, you know. And we're going to play a thing. So we're going. Oh, we've got to learn a Christmas song. So we. We did a rockin' version of "Children <laughs> Go Where I Send Send You," you know, which is oh, I later did okay. myself for, for a Christmas album. Uh, anyway, so we did this. Yeah, yeah. We did this song, and who would there? The only, you know, there was a few pop stars and stuff, and one of them was Olivia Newton-John, the recently deceased. And and that's the first wow. time I ever met her. We actually became friendly down the line, you know, but um, oh, uh, many years later. Yeah. But she was there. But so our big gig was coming up. And they said we got, we want a new we want to call you a new name and we we think this is a really good name because it's got colour association it's got this they wanted to call us the pink thinks thinks with a th so the people yeah, who okay.
0: are
1: advertising this this <laughs> Christmas thing misheard it as you would because don't exactly roll off the tongue and put pink thinks right on the poster. <laughs> Liv and John, so and so and so and so, and the Pink Finks. So he said, "Ah, oh, that's better. Actually, that's better. well, I like that better. If we're going to be Pink Anything, let's be yeah. the Pink Finks." And it's on a poster, so we can't change it now because everyone will know us as the Pink Finks. You know, everyone in Footscray. That is, yeah. And uh, and so that's how we came to be to lose the name the Foves and become the by accident the Pink Finks. Yeah. Right.
0: Did it help you? Were people still saying, "What do you mean by pink finks?" Is that a film noir reference, or is that some criminal reference, illusion?
1: Well, or- no, people knew what a people knew what a fink was. You know, fink was someone who rats on you. Yes. or and there was a character called Rat Fink. Yeah, yeah. You know, it sort of. There was like some the fa- f- famous it? finks. You know, pink finks, and they came up with this slogan. You know, like when you think pink. Think pink thinks, you know. This is for advertising our okay. first single. It was like had all this crap, and and uh, and we all bought like pink shirts to wear, you know, because everyone used to have like band uniforms for a while, you know, it was like a thing, and then we got sick of wearing the pink shirts, and we just started to ad lib, you know. But anyway, that was that. That's my Fove connection. And then years later, a band pops up called the Foves yep. and starts rocking around the country, and I go, wow, there you go. They must be. They must be art students. <laughs> was my conclusion. <laughs> was I? Was I right?
0: <laughs> well, two of them are studying English literature at uh, Monash, and they uh, had very arty years. Yeah. But yeah, almost. There yeah,
1: there you go. I suppose you could say that. Yeah, and they would have read a few books, you know.
0: Yes, very literate, and you know, referencing allus- yeah, allusions, yeah, uh, literate allusions in their early lyrics, which are very atmospheric and apocalyptic. Yeah. So you're sort of right. <laughs> Going back to that uh, Liv Newton John gig, Christmas gig, did you just support her lower on the bill, or did you actually join her for any numbers? Did you back her, or
1: no? Well, we were pre- we could barely play, you know. We got up and we did our, right. our rockin' version of Children Go Where I Send You, and um, and yeah. I just remember people sort of looking at us, you <laughs> <going, laughs> know, these guys, you know. She was, I think. She was yeah. quite a good singer as well. And she's a little, you know, looking down. Uh, the feeling I got was she was sort of looking down her nose at us at the time, <laughs> you know. And, and so, but thankfully yeah. the gig got cancelled because I don't think anyone bought new any tickets or well, something happened. So we didn't actually get to play that. But we did go down to Rosebud <laughs> and spend several weeks, uh, you know, having wild uh, time down at Rosebud playing at the, this dance that the, our so-called managers were running, you know. And uh, that was pretty wild. With the
0: Rising Suns, did they, did they let you join you on stage to play harp again, or was there a bit of bad blood that no, you no, we ditched them or anything no, like that? No,
1: we were <laughs> mates, and by this stage, you know, I was, I was lead singing, yeah, of uh, lead singer of the Pink Things and and taking them down. A, a, I mean, I had quite a few blues records already, and so we'd like learn a sleeping John Esty song, but rock it up, you know, and and like I said, we could barely play. The first gigs we did were at the downbeat club which was a um, jazz club above clemen's music store in russell street
0: in russell yeah, yeah and I've that heard had about that.
1: that had been for quite some time a well established jazz club but then like people forget that in between rock and roll kind of taking off in the late 50s in australia there was this lull mm. where it kind of got all whitewashed and you know the wildness taken out of rock music and mm-hmm. became more pop and and this Roots kind of thing popped up particularly in America, where they had folk music and stuff, but particularly in England where they had Skiffle and Lonnie Donegan, and jazz bands, you know they had jazz Chris Barber having hits and all that. And the same thing happened in Australia. There were folk clubs mm-hmm. uh, and there were all these jazz dancers, like teenage jazz dancers, right? And one of the reasons how I had a few role models at my school, which is a Red Onion jazz band. And they were real popular around our neighbourhood. were young guys playing really old style trad jazz, and we used to go off to watch them play at at the local places, you know. And um, and so when the Stones and those things started to come along, I'm going, gee, I wouldn't mind doing that. It was like just a natural thing. Oh, let's form a band, you know, like the, and. But what my point about this was overnight, when the Beatles hit in a big way, and there was the Mersey Beat, and everybody, the jazz dancers were just shattered you know and they all switched to uh pop music and and uh r&b and stuff and so that's that was i mean there was just scores of those dances for kids around you know so that's that's kind of the period we came in when the jazz thing had just fallen over and all the dancers in that all across melbourne were switching to um you know the new music because <laughs> that's what the kids wanted to hear, yeah. and so the Red Onions became the loved ones because they saw the writing on the wall Yes, too. that's
0: right. Yeah, yeah.
1: So yeah, it was a big. Uh,
0: were they two separate groups though? The the sort of the jazz movement and the the new the folk. Were they two separate groups, or did people flirt between them, use the same venue spaces, and book and that well, sort of stuff?
1: They they did for a while, but the, like I said, the. You know, teens going to jazz dances, it was kind of a more of a social thing and fun and all that kind of. But it wasn't like we were totally into jazz. I was a bit because my dad had lot, he played lots of jazz around the house. But the, your average teen was just like, well, what's next? You know, where can I have fun? You know, and suddenly it was like, oh, let's go see the new Beatles or whoever it is on your block, you know. And so what, what was interesting yeah. about that, you know, people who were interested about the scene back then is they were, Quite often, teen dancers, like the one where I met the, the foves, uh, um, run by teenagers, right? So everyone was learning how mm-hmm. to do stuff. We had all these places you could actually go play, you know. You weren't just sitting in your yeah. in your home studio making a record and then hoping someone was going to listen to it. You go out and you play. And, um, and people yeah. would come along and and they were being run by young entrepreneurs. I remember my next band, The Party Machine, going to play a Jewish dance in Alma Road, and a young Michael Gawinski was like, you know, 17 or something, he was running it, carrying our amps in. Come on, guys, we've got to get one stage, you know. We come from another dance, you know. That's the first <laughs> time I ever met Michael Godisky, yeah. And this is a whole thing, wow. and I don't think you've got that kind of thing going on now, which is a bit of a shame because it's nothing like, you know, one gig is like about ten rehearsals in experience. You learn stagecraft and how to relate to an audience and all that sort of stuff, you know. Yeah.
0: Were you were you hands-free? Were you playing guitar in the, in the, the Pink Finks or...? Just singing.
1: No, there were two guitarists in the pink thing, So the rhythm guitar and uh, Ross Hannaford on lead guitar. But he had a really crappy guitar. He had this sort of acoustic with a pickup on it.
0: It was a television, was oh okay. He used an amp that was a television or something like a. Rec- a oh, then we went.
1: Then we went to um, yeah. We got a few more bucks and started playing more. Made it a, cut, cut a couple of singles and we were on telly. And we had our 1965 was our year. We were. I was in my last year at school <laughs> and Hannaford was coming up through the ranks. He was sort of, you know, uh, being arty and he, he swapped a few schools. I'm not sure what happened there. but uh, And the drummer, Richard Franklin, he was a mate of mine. Richard Franklin. Yeah, he was a, a mate of mine from, from the same school, right? And I knew he could play the drums yeah. and we'd been into the trad jazz thing and then I we said, we're going to start, you know, these guys, their drummer, when I went to have a jam with them, I said they want me to sing with them, but their drummer's not very good, you know. So, oh. <laughs> be, you know, I wanted to... So I brought in uh, my drummer, you know, or our, Richard? us. Yep. And he he later, you know, I went on to have, you know, a music career. He went on to become a film producer, uh, film director, you mm. know. He, he was a, like a... a he got mentored by Alfred Hitchcock. And that was his big thing at the time. You know, he was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to become a film guy. And we used to make little sort of animated films with his Super 8 camera and all that in his backyard. And um, yeah, he did. He went off. His parents had a fit, bit of dough and they sent him off to uh, Berkeley School of you know Film and, and he would hang out with Alfred Hitchcock and learn all that stuff. And he ended up doing Psycho 2. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and also some... Some El- Alfred Hitchcock uh, influenced songs like, um, sorry, films. Uh, Road Games is one that's held in high esteem yeah. by Quentin Tarantino, for God's sake. Yeah.
0: Yes. You know what's interesting about that? Road Games was written by the famous screenwriter Everett DeRoche, whose daughter married Phil, one of the guitarists in the
1: second foes. Well, there you, know, you go. This this is Australia, you know, Australia. And everyone goes like, oh, you know, like six degrees of separation. I said, we're in Australia. There's one degree. <laughs> it's like one degree yeah. of separation. <laughs> you know, that's because we've only got so many people here, you know. In America, you need six degrees. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Do you think Richard, did he film any promos of the of the Pink Finks or anything? Like any any any. Uh, stage footage that he took or anything like that? No, no. Or just these things in the backyard, no? No, we just remember,
1: we used to get like a rubber toy thing and make animated things of a dog jumping around in the yard, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, Just just testing stuff out for fun. Uh, But then he went off to America and didn't come back for a while and I finally met up with him again in the 80s when I was looking for someone to do a film clip, but that didn't happen. And then um, he passed away about, I don't know, 15 years ago, I think and uh, but everyone like Ross Hannaford, continued on in music I continued on in music the rhythm guitarist David Cameron he became a, a, an accomplished actor and stage director and and television director so he he's a, we all went into showbiz except the bass player he became a printer <laughs> the rest oh. the rest of <laughs> so it was a good it was a good uh, so there you go that's what happened when your former band called the foves and it morphs into all, all sorts of other things.
0: So you're pretty young at this time. You're probably... Yeah. In, sorry, I'm only 40. I don't remember what you used to call Form 1, Form 2, but you're probably in year 11 or 12 when the Fauves slash the Pink Finks were getting around.
1: Um, I was like 16. I was I was the eldest of the... You know, I had seniority. Hannaford was like... He just turned, thir- <laughs> he turned 13. He was 13 by the time we started making... Um, going into the studio and yeah yeah but we made our first single was a totally independent production we couldn't be bothered we didn't think anyone want to sign us anyway so we just made a record Louie Louie you know don't yeah a really wild version <laughs> of it it's so different from the other other versions because I couldn't figure out what the lyrics were from the from the Kingsman's version that I heard and so I just made up the so all the other versions of of louis louis in the world have probably got the right lyrics except for my one i just made up these extra words and and uh and it's held in quite as high esteem by louis louis aficionados oh, no. anyway we put on our own label mojo records and my brother was also an art student oh, yes. and he designed the label and we put it out and all our you know kids at school all bought it and then it got played on the radio and then we and then, and suddenly we had, we were on the charts in Melbourne for like five or six weeks, so that was really cool we went, we've made wow. it, we've made it, we're going on television, you know but we weren't, <laughs> we were only allowed to play at the weekends and we had a, a a mate who had a ute, so we'd all pilot all our stuff in the back of the ute and half the band as well, and get trot off to like local dances and play yeah.
0: You were the original silver
1: chair. Well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You recorded the album, of all places, in, Mont, in Mount uh, Mont Albert. Is that right? I can't imagine there being a, a Crest Records, Louis Louis, Is that right? I'm reading oh, here. Oh, in
1: Mount Waverley Road. Waverley Road. I think it's... I think in it's Mount Albert, near Surrey Hills. Uh, yeah? yeah, it sort of was more like Malvern, I think. It was down near the start. Oh, right. it, be, it was a uh, Crest Records. It was an old picture theatre, and it later became... I was back there a couple of years later, and it had turned into um, an ABC studio, like where they used to record orchestras and stuff, you know. Uh, but we, when we recorded with, uh, and it was Crest um, Records, there was the balcony, like uh, you know, where the back stalls would be under, and that's where they would record um, the jazz bands and whoever came in. And and and, and that, they didn't have multi-tracking, so we we just re- recorded live, you know, the whole thing is live, me playing up everything and shouting into a microphone. And we did two takes and we went, oh, the first one's better. We'll keep that. <laughs> that was it, one, one take wonder. And and came out and it's just, you know, it's rough, but it's it's got it's a lot of energy. So everybody wants to check out the Pink Finks, Louie uh, Louie, get on YouTube and ever listen.
0: Now, you mostly, all your sing, following singles were uh, covers with uh, B-side covers as well. I noticed you got an EP called In Group. Do you remember that release, In Group? Is that yeah,
1: what happened? happened was we because we got on the charts with our, with our independent production, by this time we were managed by Brian Courcy who was like a bit of a mover and shaker and, and he ran a lot of teenage dances and he managed a lot of local artists like Merv Benton and Colin Cook and all these pop stars. And... They were all, he had a relationship with W and G Records, which was a Melbourne-based label, and they w- recorded just about everyone that he had. You know, he'd take them in and they were having hits. And he was he was a big R&B and rock and roll freak. He had a huge record collection and he would sort of basically be the A&R guy, you know. So he'd make a few suggestions and he suggested we do the Eddie Cochran song, something else, you know. So we cut rec- that. But we had our own thing going as well. And we go. And we want to cut it. We'll cut back door man because it's a Howling Wolf song. We like Howling Wolf, you know. And uh, and what was the other one? Uh, yeah. And so we put two singles out, and they're pretty shit outs actually. I don't like listening to those oh. those two. They're <laughs> on the In label, which was W and G's attempt to have a teen, you know, a little bit yeah, in right. in label. Yeah. yeah. So that, In crowd. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the In In group thing was like was an EP that they put one of our tracks on, but then. We, they suggested uh, that we have a producer because we didn't really have a producer they said Johnny Chester who was a big pop star as well around and and a good guy as well a good make and having lots of hits and it turned out he was right and started to write songs he said yeah I'd like to produce you guys um for W and G and so he took us in the studio and we, and we did we were getting better by then and we did uh Mel Torme song I'm not sure if he wrote it or not' but called um, coming home baby. Well known song. And we did a, <laughs> you know, I blew a bit of harp yeah. on it. We made a pretty cool track. And he said, I've got this song I think it'd be good for you. It's called You're Good for Me. And he said, I don't want you, baby. Because as I was like, and it was right down our alley. So that's the first original <laughs> yep. song. We didn't write it, but the first original, for all I know, I'm not quite sure of this, but it could have been the first Johnny Chester song ever to get recorded. I'm not sure. But that's one of my favorite tracks because it really. Really, kind of rocks and it, and he goes for like a minute forty or something. It's great, you know, and and it's got it. It's got all these riffs, and we're really rocking it up, you know, and and so that and so W and G records were very impressed by this single, right? They say, this is a real step up. We think mm-hmm. this is real good, and we're going to put it on W and G records instead of that was like wow. a big. This a big like, Yeah, I'm going, oh, so in records as shit, was it? You know, it was like, <laughs> that's, it's like, like that's the inference I got from that. Anyway, that was the last single we yeah. did, but it, it was good. Both sides of that are really good.
0: Did you have some original songs in your live set, so to speak, or not really, just the...
1: No, they were all like, uh, you know, either covers, songs we liked, or... Um, Reworkings of blues songs that, that you know, yes. I, I would usually dig something up, you know, and we'd have a go at that. Uh, and yeah, a lot of R&B stuff, but um, then 1965 ended, and several of the members, well, Richard Franklin's going, I, oh, you know, this has been fun, guys, but I'm going to university, you know, <laughs> and uh, similarly with the bass player, who's going, Well, I'm gonna go do an apprenticeship, you know. And so I'm going, oh, so me and Hannaford, we were going to, the next summer rolled around and instead of playing down at um, Rosebud for a couple of weeks, we were sort of moping around going, to, gee, what are we going to do, you know? Uh, and so by the time that the next year started, you know, my mother was had said to me, I'm sitting around the house at the summertime watching the midday movies. She said, you you realise you don't get summer holidays anymore. You've finished school, you've passed your exams and now you've, you've got to get a job. And I've got to go Oh yeah! So I went out and I got a job for the public service, right? Because that was easy. That's all I could. passed the exam, and, and uh, I'd passed, you know, what was called matriculation then, is now HRVEC or whatever VCE, whatever it is now. And so I, I passed. <laughs> I was passed past that, and I got this job. But meanwhile, we had kept the Pink Finks going, and then we gradually started changing it. And I started to write songs, and. My, mm-hmm. There was, a, I was still living at home with my folks, and there was a piano there, and I'd got myself a bit of a crappy guitar, and I used to think of things while I'm doing this, being a clerk for the Commonwealth Government, it was great. I had a phone. You could smoke in the office. Everyone wow. smoked then, you know. Tea lady'd come bring around tea at ten, and then another. Then you'd break for lunch, and then you have another tea break at like three or something. So in between <laughs> stamping files and finishing reports and whatever it was I had to do, you'd light up a fag and I'd be scribbling down lyrics and use the phone to call my agent. Got any gigs, you know, <laughs> all of that stuff. So the, the Commonwealth Service did me did me proud and I lasted there <laughs> for like two and a half years while the, party, the Pink Figs turned into the party machine yeah. and we just started writing songs, like good, bad, indifferent. A lot, some were good, some weren't, but just kept doing it, you know, writing, writing, writing. Me and Russ Hannaford and uh, Mike Rudd joined. Mike Rudd, who became in, the leader of Spectrum, uh, he joined us on bass. He had been a New Zealand in a New Zealand band that came over here, and they broke up, and he needed a gig, so he hadn't. He'd been a rhythm guitarist before that, but he we said, "Can you play bass? We need a bass player." Because we become friends with him, and that's how the Party Machine happened, you know. And we started. We put out like one single, and it wasn't bad. And then we broke up. <laughs> <laughs> but but then I was Aww. but the main thing was I had left. We were getting enough gigs, and I'd taken that that made that decision that if you want to listen, listen, kids, if you want to make it in the industry, yeah. the industry, you have to. Or whether <laughs> it is you want to become like a graphic artist or whatever it is, something creative comes a point in your life where you got to jump off the edge without a net and go, this is what I'm going to do. And I quit my job and I, we, we started to, you know, we had enough work going on. And so we went on an interstate tour and all the things that can, bad that can happen, happened. You know, we got ripped off, we got bashed up, we got all our equipment stolen. And I came, we came back to, to Melbourne with our tails between our legs and Hannaford said, well, you know, I think I'll go to art school and I got a phone call for, well, I think it was already going to high school, but it was like, you know, um, uh, I got a phone call from this band that had gone to England, the procession, sort of prog rock band, said, Oh, we're having a lineup change and we decided we want a front man. Their main guy, guitarist was a good singer, but they decided they want a freestanding guy and they liked the songs I'd written, they'd heard us play and so and and uh, so I had one of the, this is a convoluted story. <laughs> How I got into the pink pink finks in the first place or the foves was the year in the middle of the summer before that. I had been hitchhiking as everyone did back then, and I, I got hit by a car. We got out of one car, and I didn't look properly, and I got hit by a car. I ended up in hospital with a broken leg. So I was in hospital for months, and when I, and I started to hear music on the, the headphones in the hospital. With harmonicas and stuff like the Beatles had it wah, 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 wah. you know a few others were popping up and I said I said well, I was recuperating when I got home I said hey dad can you you work in town can you get me a harmonica you know he got me a little hona harmonica and I started playing along with copying things that were on I heard on the radio like yeah, you know, uh and I and I got pretty quick I got good and that's how I got into the band right because I could play harp and sing Years go by and I get called up for conscription, uh, a.k.a. the draft, right, to go into the army while well, Australia was fighting the Vietnam War, which we all thought was a bunch of shit. But they were conscripting young men of, of 18 and 19 and I was, on, I was in the ballot. My number came out. My birthday came out. But because I'd been hit by that car, my leg didn't, my knee didn't bend properly. I got out of it. And that's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Thanks. And it's one reason I will never vote liberal, because they tried to kill me. <laughs> they wanted to kill me and all my friends, right? And they would do it again in a blink if they thought they'd get away with it. Do you agree or not? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, then <laughs> I get this phone call uh, at an auspicious moment when we're down in the dumps after everything, all those things I told you about happened. And I had just received $2,000 yeah. from whatever the equivalent of was TAC at the time, you know, for this accident oh, right, yeah. that happened Compensation. four years, three or four years before. Uh, oh, no, I got it when I turned 20. No, <laughs> I got it when I turned 21. So 21 by then, you know, so it was like okay. five years later or something. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, they said, we can't, why don't you come over and be a front man? We, I said, well, how am I going to do that? Well, we can't, we haven't got any money, but we've we got to stay in this big place and you'll... I plan to eat and we've got some gigs coming up but we can't afford to fly you away. I said, don't worry, I've got this money just came into my hands. So that, that whole getting run over by a car led to me learning the harp, getting in a group, getting out of conscription and not getting killed in Vietnam. And then off... To my adventures in England, you know, where that's a whole other story. Which, uh, if I ever write a book, I'll put what happened there because it's a very interesting story. So, by the time I came back, I kind of had this vision of what I want to do: sons a vegetable, mother, daddy cool. That's what happened, and then I've been a professional musician ever since for the last fifty years. So, wow. don't go out and get hit by a car, kids, but. Make that decision to jump <laughs> off the edge if you think, if you're serious about it, that's what you got to do. you got to be prepared to starve in an attic, just like the classics say you got to do.
0: <laughs> Amen. I think maybe something similar happened to Ringo because, you know, he was in and out of hospital a lot when he was a kid and it just, um, I think, A, he maybe got out of the English draft, you know, because that was still around to the 55 or whatever, and also he concentrated on the drums and you did the similar thing with the harp. There you go, <laughs> yeah. Here's a question. Were you still in hospital when the Beatles came? Did you manage to see them Festival Hall or outside Southern Cross or anything? I was
1: out, and we had. I was by the time they came, I mean, I was into the Beatles very early on. I, I Six months before they became big in Australia, I'd heard my first Beatle record on Stan Roof's Platter Parade, right? I'm going, wow, these guys sound great. You know, he was the first ones to play them. Uh, so I was into them. So by the time they – when they became like huge, 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 huge – I was, well, oh, well, the Beatles, you know, they're everywhere. I don't have to buy their records, or anything because I can hear them every five seconds, you know. Um, and I was getting <laughs> into the, the Stones then came along. Well, I remember being in hospital and reading the Sunday paper and there's this picture of these guys with much longer hair. If, if you look at it now, it doesn't look that long. Uh, and it said, from out <laughs> of the Stone Age, this band's called the Rolling Stones, and they're taking <laughs> London by storm. i going, ooh, they look like my kind of people, you know. So... By the time I got out of hospital and that they'd bought out their first album, and um, I was getting into that, you know, uh, and right. So then the Beatles came out towards the end of that year, sixty four was. Yeah, was it June or something. Yeah. I thought it was June. Well, whenever yeah, it was, I was already. I was sort of now into the 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 slash Pink Finks, and we went into the city. Some connection we had, um, you know, Scott's Church in the city, Scott Presbyterian Church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was yeah. a room and they were allowed, us, they let us rehearse in there, right? So we oh, had yeah. this rehearsal on the day that the quarter of a million people turned up at the Southern Cross to, to see the Beatles on the, on oh. the thing. But while we were kind of over the Beatles by then, for, for a start, my big brother, yeah. who was a, more of a kind of Classical music and musical theatre and all that kind of a guy. He was liking the Beatles, and I'm going, Well, my big brother likes the Beatles, you know, they're not hip anymore, man. You know, I still like them, but I was kind of moved on, and they're going, Teeny So we're there, we come out of the out of our rehearsal, and the streets are kind of empty, except around the block, there's thousands of people doing it. And he said, Well, we go up and see the Beatles, and we all went, Nah, let's go home. <laughs> <laughs> Oh well,
0: <laughs> silly Billies! Hindsight—the power of hindsight—is. Uh, oh, I'm not,
1: I don't care that I didn't see the Beatles. Believe me, I'm not. There's no regrets about it, you know.
0: You did get to see though, Buddy Holly and the crickets. I understand as a ten-year-old.
1: That's right. Well, the Beatles started out they wanted. Well, the Beatles started out they wanted to be like Buddy Holly and the chirping crickets and and the Everly Brothers. That's why they got those great harmonies. They wanted to copy the Everly Brothers, but. Um, yeah, the very first show I went to when I was like ten years old, nineteen fifty-eight, early fifty-eight. I'd just turned ten a few months before. Got my dad to take me along. How'd you
0: talk your dad into it? Oh, because Yeah, was that hard to sell? He
1: well, he was still you know relatively young then, right? And mm. uh, he he was oh uh, look what a, his kids get into. What he he had a he used to go spear fishing. He was like a pioneer spear fisherman with a few of his mates, you know, and um. One of his mates uh, one of his mates had two kids, boys, and I was friend with them, so yep. we all trooped along together. Let's go see Jerry Lee Lewis. Mm-hmm. I love Jerry Lee Lewis and Buddy Holly in the Crickets. I had a single by him, you know. And we went along, it was fantastic. Johnny yeah. O'Keefe was on as well, it was incredible. So and one stage I remember all the, you know, teenagers were right running down the aisles and getting put back in their seats by the bouncers at Festival Hall and <laughs> Yay.
0: Buddy Holly, I, I guess, was he doing sort of 30-minute length sets like the Beatles would last do if he was on a bill with um, with John O'Keefe and stuff? Was it a long set from memory? or
1: um, Everybody just played real short, I think, uh, because they had a lot of acts on the bill. It was like this Lee Gordon, The Big Show, and he would have like five uh. big acts and maybe even another couple of little ones, you know. But I think mainly it played for like 20 minutes or something, you know. A bit. And Johnny O'Keefe opened and he, being Johnny O'Keefe, <coughs> pretty dynamic. And You know, I'd been used to seeing him yeah. on TV and stuff. Excuse me. <coughs> and he was just, he tried to blow the import guys off stage. So he was like rolling around on his back and he had like the backup singers, the Deltones and, you know, saxophones. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Was it um a mixed crowd age wise, do you think? I mean, would many Buddy Holly would he have been that popular amongst you could buy Buddy Holly records pretty easily at that time, nineteen fifty
1: eight? Yeah, we're starting to buy records. I was I'd save up my pocket money, which is like sixpence at a time or something, until I had enough to buy a record. And like I said, before my dad worked in the city and I'd say, Hey Dad, can you get me Buddy Holly and the crickets? That'll be the day you know, which was their first big hit he would bring it home and whatever record it was, you know, I'd play it to death, you know. I had a, I had a big grammar. We had a big old, you know, Stromberg-Carlson gramophone, you know, big Ooh. thing. with played, you know, 45s and albums and all that. Really good speaker and it. it turned up loud and play both sides, you know, find out what's on the other side. Oh, I haven't heard that before. Play that over and over and over, you know, <laughs> and then drag out whatever. So gradually I started having like one or two singles, you know, three singles, four fives, and, um, you know, I was getting into music, yeah, so that, that that first concert I went to, you know, actually seeing Buddy Holly and the Crickets, you know, on stage, and I, I don't really have many memories of what that sounded like or anything like that, but I just have a picture of them sort of standing there, you know, and, and, and Jerry Lee Lewis, he was great, because he, he was quite flamboyant, and so he's pounding away on his piano and singing, you know, a whole lot of shaking going on, which I just loved. And uh, <laughs> he and he, he had what was considered long hair back then, but he used to, you know, theatrical way, he'd like flop his blonde hair forward like some mad maestro, good, you know, um, conductor, you know, cartoon conductor type guy. And then he, he'd finish the song and everyone go, and he'd sit back and he'd pick up this big uh, red comb that he had on his piano on the ground and comb his hair like that, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, my my biggest memory of that night is thinking to myself, got to get me one of those combs. <laughs> 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 and the other one was like, I really love the sound of saxophones, and I still do, you know. And the, the big baritone sax, you know, always, I, like, I got it. Geez, I'd love to play the baritone sax. Except said when I went, you know. Figuring it out later, I'm going, oh, it's too big and I'm too little, I won't, it won't work, you know. So I had to scrap my plans to be a sex player.
0: Did his piano playing entice you, though? I mean, I hope the piano
1: was Mike's, but, I mean, that would have been pretty mesmerising, yeah. Well, I, I had a friend, a school friend at that time who, you know, we're all, like I said, 10 years old and going still at primary school. And uh, I used to go around his place after school and his his mother I think she was off working somewhere, but she was still quite young. You know, She was probably 30 or something like that, you know, young mother. And she had, they had a wind-up 78 gramophone, and they had two rock and roll records. They had uh, that she'd bought, Rock Around the Clock, backed with 13 women, both good tracks, and a whole lot of shaking going on. I can't remember what was on the other side, but they were both seventy eight, you know, big 10-inch records. And we'd stick those on. And rack, you know, turn the handle, and just turn it up as loud as you could get it, and just jump around the room to rock around the clock, and a whole lot of shaking going on. So that were my first like real kind of visual experiences of, you know, rock and roll, and that uh, two great tracks, you know, classics. But I, I, that was I went along to that that show, but I didn't. That was I didn't go to another festival hall show, rock and roll show, for about another two years. I don't know why. I was like. Maybe you know had been the one, and or maybe people weren't on that I wanted to see, but you know I didn't get to see Little Richard or anyone like that, which I would have loved to see. I won well, the other guy that was on the bill who had a big hit at the time was a sixteen-year-old uh, Paul Anker, who was like a teen uh, teen prodigy oh. at the time. They go, oh, this guy writes his own songs and everything. He and he's sixteen. He had a. You're so young and I'm so old, but Diana, which I kind of liked. But he, he he came on the show and he goes, he sings, like, before he sings Diana, he goes, like, I'd like to sing you my new song, my goody-goody gumdrops. And I was, like, 10 and I'm going, oh, oh I'm over this guy already. Like, forget about Dave. So I don't even, I don't sort of include him in the anecdotes, really, when I'm talking about the first rock show, you know. <laughs>
0: Did they have MCs between gigs, between acts or anything like that? And There was no comedy or – it wasn't a variety of yeah, I guess so. Just-
1: I guess I can't remember, but, yeah, they would have been announced, yeah. The like, next one I went to was a few years later. It was Crash Craddock, right? Crash Craddock who had Boom, Boom, Baby, or the One I Adore. He had a couple of really big hits. He was bigger here than he was in the States. He was kind of like an Elvis kind of type guy, you know. And they they even had fashion here. He had – he had this kind of jumper that had like a crew neck and a little chain across there, like a little collar thing. And I remember everyone was wearing those jumps, a crash-cratic jumper. you got to get yourself a crash-cratic jumper. And, uh, and so he was real big and I had his record Boom Boom Baby, which is a great record, great, you know, Nashville pop pop rock kind of thing. And uh, so he came out and on the bill were other acts I wanted to see. So that's probably why I went along. It had uh, Santo and Johnny, you know, the instrumental guys, like, uh, slide guitar, mm-hmm. fantastic, Sleepwalk. <laughs> Classic, you know. <laughs> and The Diamonds, who I also had a single by them, Little Darling, you know. A little darling. And they were like a, they were um, a Canadian group. Actually, I don't Johnny was Canadian as well. They were, the Diamonds were a Canadian group who had lots of big hits, particularly in Australia, and they would typically get... Uh, a black artist record and just cover it both sides of the record, and that's what they did with one of their biggest hits was um, "Silhouettes," right, which is done by the Rays of Black oh. Group, backed with "Daddy Cool," the song "Daddy Cool," wow. "Daddy Cool," "Daddy Cool." But I never knew that. I didn't have that. <laughs> I didn't have that single, so I didn't know about that. So when I formed came back from England, I formed "Daddy Cool" uh, out of the sons of Vegetable mother. They were more prog rock. Uh, a, a, a young guy that lived around the corner, a little sort of hippie student guy I, I knew in the neighbourhood, he says, what are you doing now, Ross? I said, oh, we're just going to rehearse my new band, Daddy Cool. He goes, Daddy Cool, named after the, the song. I said, nah, what do you mean? And he, he just lived around the corner. So we ran around to his little shack he had in South Carolina there and he had a pile of singles and one of them was the Diamonds Silhouettes back with Daddy Cool. He goes, Listen to this. And I go, Oh, wow. I just took it back to the rehearsal we were about to have, and we learned it straight away. And that was our theme song, you know. So there you go.
0: <laughs> Silhouettes famously was um, the vague, vague basis for No Reply by the Beatles. So, yeah, that record has had uh, an effect. It had its effect on the yeah. wider world of music. <laughs> yeah, big hit. Big yeah.
1: hit at the time. Yeah.
0: Did you get. A Buddy Holly famously was signing autographs outside Festival Hall. Did you do you recall that or did you Did you no. get to see him or meet him or anything like that? Nah, nah.
1: No, well, I've, before we got cut off before, I was about to tell you about all the, you know, bodgies and widgies running around Festival Hall and, you know, getting Ugh. mopped up. you're a 10-year-old. You're scared? No, no, but oh. I thought, gee, <laughs> it's getting a bit frantic now. I hope Dad doesn't sort of take us home, you know, and I looked, I turned oh, around yeah. and he had this huge grin on his face like he was loving it because... He used to go when he's when he was a teenager. He was going to like swing big big band swing dances and things, you know, pre-war. Yeah. And then he had to go off. He joined the army I and go to fight fight the Japanese. But um, in his teenage, he's like he was already into jazz. That was his big thing. He loved trumpets and stuff, you know. So he was he and his sister. He were quite a glamorous young teenage couple, and um, used to go off and do. I, I realised later, and used to go off and you know do the jitterbug and all that kind of stuff. So he knew, the, he, he knew the, the connection, you know, between... And and I made that connection too because my old, my dad had these um, 78s as well as he had albums, but he had these old 78s he'd bought along the way as he was, you know, collecting records, and he had the Boogie Woogie records like Pete Ammons, and, uh, Albert Ammons and Pete Johnson and things like that. And I'd put that on i go, that's like Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard. That's what... <laughs> And so I very early on made the connection that all this music was connected, you know, that it didn't matter if it was like a folk blues or a, or a jazz thing, you know, Louis, he had old Louis Armstrong Hot Five records, so-and-so, this, this and that and the other blues. Everything had blues at the end of it, you know. And, and again, that's where rock and roll, that's rock and roll's come from there. I figured it out, you know. It wasn't a rock snob or anything like that. It was just like... I just innately knew, and that's why when I started playing that the harp, I was able to improvise very early because once I got a few riffs off and by copying by ear, I started to make up my own stuff because I'd just been hearing people do that all my life on jazz records. That's what you did—you made stuff up over the, the chords. You could hear the chords, and you just make up what you want in that key, you know. And that's uh, that's kind of how I got my start.
0: What about the more modern bebop and that sort of jazz? Were there their own adherents and venues around town for that or was it all sort of still big band, Dixieland?
1: I don't know. My dad had uh, – that was that trad jazz revival, but that was more of a kind of a roots thing, you know. Um, but the bebop thing, you know, that's a bit more kind of cerebral, but I was totally aware of, um, yeah. of Dizzy Gillespie and those because, like, Dizzy Gillespie and um, – uh, Lionel Hampton, right? Lionel Hampton. Th- These guys, Lionel Hampton came out to Festival Hall. I didn't go out to see him. I think my, my dad did. But my dad took me to see Louis Armstrong at Festival Hall. He took me to see Dave Brubeck, Take Five, all that. They would go along. And so I got, you know, a bit of an education there. My mum would take me to the opera, you know. I saw Aida and Tales of Hopman, you know, while I'm sitting <laughs> up in the gods going, ooh, wow, you know, opera, wow. Uh, you know, I had a fairly good um, biosmosis um musical, you know, education. Uh, but, yeah, I was aware of, like, Dizzy Gillespie because he's, like, very entertaining, you know. He was the original beatnik. Everyone copied him, wear a berry and have a little goatee, you know, like Dizzy Gillespie. Um, and Lionel Hampton played the vibes, you know, but he was originally a drummer as well. And he would, you know, listen, I love the vibes, you know, they sound terrific. And he's just good at that, you know, and so... I heard some of those as well going oh I really like that and the other things I would hear was like uh, uh, there was a jazz show on and I had a little radio in my room you know? I remember listening to uh, you know ABC some jazz show and they're playing Cannonball Adderley you know I'm going whoa that it goes alright wow I love that you know it's a trick and and because uh, and my dad had he liked all trumpeters so he had all his you know Nat Adderley and you know ray anthony and all these (laughs) kind of white guys and black guys but he just had it loved trumpet so the first thing i did when before i took up the harp i used to pick up his um trumpets and have a blow on that and i took trumpet lessons for a while but i was never any that good because i didn't like to practice you know but once i found something I, i really liked i got good at it and that was the harp and my dad was astounded because he was an amateur jazz musician he would like studiously copy people's solos you know and get these high notes and he'd go out in the garage and sit in the car and put his mute in and copy all this stuff so then i start playing the harp and i'm making shit up you know he's going he's like how do you do that like he didn't have the ability to kind of improvise but he loved what the and he had lots of jazz musician friends too and they'd come around, you know, and, and talk about jazz and stuff. But he <laughs> he couldn't innately improvise, and neither could my mother because she was she'd learned how to sight read, and so she said that always got in the way because she could always sort of see the notes in her head, you know, rather than make them up. And um, but she understood the jet. She liked jazz too, but this whole thing of just making up your own stuff. That my dad went off and bought himself a harmonica. He's going maybe that'll. Unbeknownst to me, I didn't find that out for a while. But maybe I can improvise on this. You know, it's like didn't last very long. Went back to the trumpet. You know,
0: <laughs> they said the harmonica used to be was sort of like a pocket saxophone. That was sort of where the space it filled in a band. But um, well, yeah, you yeah, can, your Dad listened to trumpets. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a good sound. You know, it was like, um and it's you can make a bit of noise on it. You know, it's like. Uh, I copied some of the early guys, but once I heard, I discovered um, the Excello label with like uh, S- Slim Harpo, I'm a King bee, you know, I can't imagine what that would have sounded like when it came out in like 1955 or something. That would be like music from Mars. I can't imagine. It still sounds like so different, you know, and it, and uh, that's kind of how I then I really tuned in on that kind of southern stuff, you know, and some of the harp players, Lazy Lester. He's a really good harp players. Influenced me, you know. If anyone wants to hear me play the harp, I'll play it for you right now. <laughs> did you did did
0: you play much of the harp in Mondo Rock, or wasn't really in favour in the eighties until Culture Club brought it back? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a harp on Mister Rock. There's a primitive love Rites, right? That's got harp. Oh, yeah. um, there's a there's a, a solo records. I've made bed of nails that features harp. In fact, I like to feature it in a kind of pop setting. You know, like a blues. It adds a thing. I've got just got a couple of new tracks in the can, and I'm playing. I play a bit, oh, cool. a bit there. It's not like showing off big solos. It's like little punctuation marks. You know, but. You know, can go on for hours. Nice. Do you have a Jew's
0: harp as well or whatever it's called? I have, to, I, have, I, have, I
1: have tried that. Yeah, that that's, it can wear you out, that dying, on You can't get any tunes out of it. Yeah, it's just yeah. It's a rhythmic thing.
0: <laughs> I love the bass harmonica and the Who song, I think, joined together. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it a bass harmonica? It's like a big, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. a lovely sound. Uh, I had another question just about Pink Finks. You know... Thumping Thumb and Catcher and Birdies were they yeah. later sixties? Did you ever perform in those sort of venues? Yeah, they were
1: more, the Thumping Tum. we the party machine. We ended up getting been managed by David Flint, who was part owner of the Thumping Tum. So we would go there all the time because we'd get him for nothing, you okay. know. And we'd see all these visiting bands, Python Lee Jackson and Max Merritt and the medias who were really cool would come down and play there for a week. They did residencies, you know, come down for a week and we'd just go every night and listen to them. It was just fantastic. Uh, big influence. You know, in fact... Back- but not the Pink Finks though. That
0: was later on, yeah? That was the Party Machine onwards. We did yeah, like... Yeah, yeah.
1: Pink Finks played all these dances and... But I can't remember when... The point in which we became the Party Machine but it was sort of like, oh, Pink Finks is sort of over now. Let's have a new name, you know, because we'd me. was just me and, it was just me and um, Ross Hannaford sticking together and trying out new drummers and bass players. We went through a whole lot of them, you know, had keyboard for a while, but then we became the party machine, yeah.
0: Where's this Users Club? Have you ever heard of that place? Was that a venue, the Users Club?
1: Yeah. Does that there's, ring a bell? There's a, a few places in Melbourne that changed names over the years, but one of the <coughs> pivotal, uh-huh. pivotal ones was the Chicago Blues Club, which was on top story of a like four-story warehouse in Queensbury street and all my contemporaries used to go and play there pig thinks played there um because of, uh, and other guys like broderick smith and chris stockley and people who ended up having quite long careers they all started out there playing the blues and and, you know, just like I said before, teenagers running teenage things, you know, so these ones were blues guys. Wow. you go up there and you'd have, everyone just drank big, you know, the big bottles of beer. The, the big bottles of beer, oh. you know. So it was all a bit under under yeah. the table kind of thing, you know. <laughs> and they eventually got closed down because people kept chucking their bottles of beer off the roof.
0: <laughs> <laughs> 99 bottles on the roof. Yeah. 98. <laughs> but the catcher was
1: a fantastic place, Yeah, yeah.
0: Did you ever perform with the first incarnation of the group before Brian Cad, before the keyboards, when it was just they were sort of a no, no. They were a younger sort of um band as well, weren't they? Oh, I the liked the group. 60.
1: The group morphed into they were a kind of ex public school boys like me, uh, when they had used to have an all hound doll, when he bit me, you had a thing. And then they and then Caddy and then Caddy joined somewhere along the line, Started they started writing their own stuff. Really good songs, I thought. You know. Mm. you know, "Woman, You're Breaking Me," stuff like that. Really good.
0: That's a classic, yeah. Yeah, and sorry, and different you know, lead it, singer too. You know, that's right. So you never played with them uh, in their early incarnation. Oh
1: uh, yeah, we played same dances. You know, we bump into each other
0: like debutantes, bar mitzvahs, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Pro- at the Progress Hall? Does that ring a bell in Ascot Vale? Progress Hall. It does,
1: yeah, but I, I can't. Uh, I think it was called. There was not. There was one called Mandira Hall, I think. Uh they do ring a bell. But we we mainly we mainly played in the south side of town for some reason because that's where we were from and we didn't have much transport, you know.
0: Yeah. Did you ever? Um, did you and Richard ever talk about doing a soundtrack together on an, any one of his films, or or did you? I,
1: no. I've had a look at IMDb, but no, no, no he no, didn't. He didn't give me a. So didn't give me a wave in that direction, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> yeah. And when you were working at the Department of Supply, did you deal with anything interesting or do you have any fond memories of any, I don't know, any projects you're involved with or anything? Or all- at,
1: I met my first wife there. My first wife, Pat Wilson, the, the bop girl. She was. Oh, okay, yeah, That's yeah. how that's, we met. That's something important. But she yep. also was new friends, like in the other bands that played at, like, the Chicago Blues Club. So we kind of went, oh, you'd go to that as well." So we had all these common interests, you know, um, that, that went into play there. But no, I was a, I was a tender clerk. I was like, put ads in the. They'd put an ad in the government gazette, you know, one million ration cans or something like that, you know, like a uh, put in your tender, you know. Uh, and I, I'd get the, you know, the date would come. You'd collect whoever put a tender, and usually it'd be the guys who made them before. You would get the job. You go like, make up a report like, well, these guys said they'd do it for two cents, and that's like a quarter of a cent more than these other guys. But we don't know these other guys. We're not sure about them, so we'll give it to the guy who did it before because he did a good job. That sort of thing, you know, well, you know, and uh, and so it's now part of Department of Defense, and the the. I don't know if it's ironic or just a coincidence or whatever, but my grown-up son, the son I had together with uh, the Bob girl, his name's Daniel, and uh, he's the same age as Eagle Rock, 51, right? And he works pretty much the same job I had in the public service, doing ten- tenders and stuff for the, <laughs> all that kind of stuff, keeping track of things for the army, you know? Yeah.
0: But there's no tea lady these days, and there's no smoking in the offices.
1: <laughs> no smoking, no. And, of course, he'd been working from home for the last couple of years, so he can smoke if he wants to. <laughs> but I think it's kind of maybe is this, is this something that's in our genes, you know, that we gravitate towards that kind of job, you know.
0: <laughs> is there any ephemera left of the foves? Do you have any handbills or anything like that? I don't or think no, we no, ever had. I you, are you an archivist like that?
1: No. I don't think we ever had the foves on a... a a poster, not that I'm aware of, unless it was like at that very first dance where I met them, which would have been at the yeah. uh, St. Mary's Church, Marriage Road um, in Brighton, East Brighton, and it might have had the Rising Suns, the Fove's, it might have had on a pamphlet, you know. <laughs> that uh, I got sent, yeah. Richard Franklin's widow sent me a bunch of stuff recently. And uh, there's a few kind of things like that in there that he'd, he'd kept a scrapbook, you know. Uh, I'll, I'll drag it out. Yeah. I'll show it to you. Just have a second.
0: Thank you. The foes. How
1: about this? When you think pink, think, pink, think.
0: Have you thought about buying your copy?
1: Isn't that incredible? Now, in here, in, in Richard's—that's awesome. In Richard's uh, scrapbook, there's something oh. that's like that, but I think it only mentions the Pink Finks. Is uh, our chart is that in the on the charts
0: number sixteen or
1: something? We got to. Oh wow! And uh, 3DB, 3DS. three DB, three DS. Uh, That's awesome. Holland. No, there's no mention of the foes because, like I said, that was a very short-lived name. Uh, Film okay.
0: directors okay. are very good archivists. Yeah, I know that.
1: Bad. That's the kind of thing it would have looked like. That you know, sort of. Right. Pink Local spe- residents. Uh, special show at eleven thirty by the sensational Pink Finks. And that's playing in our local <laughs> fate, right? Wow! How cool is that? <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So yeah, he kept <laughs> he kept track of things. I had a I had a scrap up a little bit, but not much. See, that's the kind of thing. Pink thinks. Look at us. Ross Hannah. Who's with the glasses? Is that that's Hannah? Ross, or? H- that's Hannah. Yeah. He was at a, He was short and round back then. There he is. But a wonderful talent a wonderful talent we miss him uh, all right but no fives sorry about that that's uh somebody else <laughs> you might have to call Rick Dalton who was the instigator <laughs> of that band but we we got he he didn't last long even when I, he was we were still all still at school and he'd left school. He was a bit more ambitious. He wanted to kind of keep on We're going. He started to kind of, you know, get on our nerves, so we got someone else in. <laughs> but he might have a he might he lives in Queensland now. I've seen him every now and again. Rick Dalton and he he if anyone would have one, he would have one. He would have something about the Fobes. Definitely. Um, two more questions. One, just as a
0: punter, did you see the Who when they came to Australia?
1: I did. Yeah, see them. Are you a Who fan? Mid sixties. Yeah. How was that gig? Awesome. Awesome. It was one of those ones. I was lucky enough to be, you know, the little balcony at the back of uh, Festival Hall. There's a little balcony with about yeah, four yeah, rows yeah. in it. I was lucky enough to be sitting up there, and <clears throat> I'd been to. I'd also saw I think the same year or around the same time. Uh, Bob Dylan at Festival Hall it was incredible. It was it when he brought the band on, you know, and people booed him and walked out, and we we're going, yeah, yeah, stay out, you know? Um, but yeah, the Who, when they got to the smashing up their gear stage, like the hair stood up on the back of my neck. I was like, oh, oh, yeah, oh. you know, that doesn't happen very often. It's only happened a few times for me seeing a music act where you just go, wow you know, and that happened with the Who.
0: They got a lot of um, press flack at the time, I
1: think, gave a few obnoxious oh, well, interviews you know, and stuff. So I was always wondering, to- What's new? You know, like they gave the, yeah. <laughs> the, the small faces a hard time as well, you know, and I loved it, Steve Marriott, you know, like it was incredible. Yeah. Now they got upset with The Who because on a plane they did something, you know. Well, it's the freaking Who. What do you expect, you know? And then yeah. they put it, uh, you know, try to make everyone angry at them and, and it's gonna like, get fucked, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but the music was good. It was a good gig from your memory. It's awesome, yeah? yeah. Especially the smashing up shit, that was great. <laughs> They're really good at that.
0: The last question was just a comment. My favorite Daddy Cool song is always just gonna be Bomb Bomb. I just oh, yeah. I, I love it. Yeah. And um yeah, do you get a lot of requests for that to be used in ads and things? No. I wish I did. <laughs> <laughs> there we get. Oh, okay. <laughs> we get a lot of
1: use of uh, Eagle, Rock, Eagle, Eagle Rock. Yeah, but we also there's been others. Bomb Bomb was used in a movie, uh, along with Eagle Rock, uh, the Red Dog movie, which is yeah. a big hit. And oh, right, yeah, that's in that. Okay, that sort of pinpoints the time that, in which the movie's set. You know, there's a lot of other local stuff in there as well. It's such
0: an earworm; it gets stuck in your ear and. Um Yep.
1: Yeah, and and but we get we get a bit of use from um, uh, come back again sometimes. But Eagle Rock is the one; that's still the, right. the flagship, you know. But I play Bomb Bomb lately. I've been because <laughs> it was Daddy Cool's fiftieth anniversary last year, um, of, you know. Eagle Rock coming out and all that. I, I revived a couple of those songs, so I've been playing Bomb Bomb a bit more than I used to, and people love it. They all jump, jump around, and have a good time. They all sing along, you know. Bomb Bomb. Uh, it's great when people sing along. I like that. Baby, don't
0: you know? I find yeah. myself singing it in the shower. Yeah, and I love
1: you so, bom bom.
0: You so bom 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 Anyway, it's such an earworm. Yeah. Thanks for writing it. Um, you mentioned Crash Craddock before. I thought that song was Bomb Baby or something. Boom maybe- Baby Boom. Yeah. Boom Baby Boom. Yeah. Boom, yeah. Thought maybe you love that sound or that syllable, but
1: Daddy Cool was all about I was loving do what music at the time you know because do what music wasn't as big here as it was in the states and I discovered this whole massive genre you know and was getting into that at, and and uh, like West Coast R&B and stuff that was my big thing at the time I put Daddy Cool together it was, well, let's, let's play some of this you know and with Daddy Cool we had the voices we could do it Hannah's bass voice and I'd already been he and I were already into a bit before Daddy Cool uh, and so we were just like making up songs I was what well, why can I write a song a uh? zoop bop gold cadillac you know bomb 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 you didn't have to have it's great because you didn't have have to write many words you know just go like and the interesting thing i realized i was on a a bit of a thing at the time bomb bombs the flip side of eagle rock so eagle rock goes now listen we're stepping out gonna turn you around gonna turn you around once and we'll do the eagle rock and it does this repeat thing like gonna turn you around gonna turn you around once and then each verse it does a similar thing you know in bomb bomb it's the same baby don't you know i love you so Baby, don't you know I love you so? Baby, don't you know I love you so? You know, it's punctuated with bonbons. So you do this thing where you turn it around and repeat it. You know, I was like, "This is great. You don't have to write many words. <laughs> Just lots of sounds." Yeah, I've got. I know. I spend lots and lots of time on the lyrics. Uh, it's good fun. Good fun, but I. There's very few songs now that don't have more expanded lyrics. I go, can I still write a simple song like that? You know, I don't know if I can. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, many thanks for joining us, Ross, to um, tell us about the history of the first foves in Australia.
1: Yeah. The foves. <laughs> we we're, 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 were the first. We're, but we advocated very early in the piece so that your foves could have their, <laughs> their glory and not be... Overshadowed, Thank you very much. I'll be overshadowed by um, a band called the Fauves doing Louie Louie and making the charts. That would have wrecked everything. They would have probably, they would not have been called the Fauves, probably. They would have gone, there's other Fauves too well-known, you know, that Ross Wilson's Fauves. No good. We can't use it. So we made space for your favourite band.
0: I, I, doubt, I doubt you've really listened to much of their oeuvre or you ever
1: heard any of their songs? I know I have, but I can't. Probably not. I can't recall. Now, now I'll have to go and have a listen. Yeah.
0: You should. That that was. Yeah. That's what you need to do. I'll do it. Um, I remember once. I remember once you reviewed the Regurgitators' song "Super Straight." Do you remember that in like 2001? I was reading like Beat or Impress magazine, oh, yeah. and you. I thought, oh yeah, this old boomer's still listening to new music. <laughs> I was really grateful because I'm a huge
1: Gurge fan. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I I listened to new stuff. I had a big house music phase about two years ago. I was just getting into all these. Wow. House music is a very big genre, like wide. It covers a lot of territory. And there are some genius people in there, you know, and I'm just listening mainly to production things, but get different grooves, you know, and just just get into the groove and not worry too much about lyrics. You know, that's what house music's all about.
0: Well, many thanks for joining us, Ross. Where can people...
1: This maybe will
0: appear many months from now, unfortunately. But yeah, what what anything you want to plug or you want to promote anything in particular?
1: Well, um, I've got a couple of things going. Uh, one's called Ross Wilson's Cool World, and it, we play like lo- lot, lots of little wineries. So there's a big whole lot of those coming up in the near future uh, here and interstate, um, and it's a multi um, multi uh, artist bill. So I'm the my, me and my band, the Peacenicks, are the head headlines, but we also have the Bad Loves on the bill and we always pick up a local act as well and we've got a, a, a thing where we like pick up a local and preferably Indigenous act and The Cool World also, you know, not only being a song of mine, but it's we've linked up with what you might have heard of them called Green Music, which is a initiative to kind of make music more sustainable like you know try not to have plastic bottles and all that kind of junk as part of your your musical footprint so this is all educational i think they're even hooking us up in some places with electric vehicles so we're trying to make a little bit of a statement there ross wilson's cool world it's about about it's also at these fantastic little uh, wineries so typically you'd get like 400 people or something there you know and and uh, have a great time and that's coming up and then we've been celebrating 50 years of eagle rock i did some real special shows of that where we you know unearthed some of the sons of vegetable mother that daddy cool came out of we played kind of weird music and showed where daddy cool came from and and then where i ended up with you know uh, mondo rock so that's been integrated a little bit into my regular show now because i've found a few songs i really like to play from back there you know and um I got a really good band, good musician. So Ross Wilson, the Peasants, where you can't get rid of us, folks. Uh, we're going to be around. And I got some, I got some new tracks coming out. First real brand new ones in about ten years that are, I've been a bit slack. You know, I like haven't. It was so busy, I never got around to making new tracks. But they're sounding great. I really like them, and they're in a way a, a, a going back a bit. Um, and I still listen to a lot of a lot of blues music, so it's not actually, you know the blues per se but there's you, you can hear the influence I'm playing a bit of harp and there's a lot more humor in in these songs than uh than in recent times you know so I going back to my inner humorous self uh, as uh you know which i think will please a lot of people uh, and that's that's what i'm I'm going to be doing so look out for that look out for my new new music I'm pretty happy with way, way it's going yeah
0: Thanks for joining us, Ross. Thanks for letting us break into your cool, cool world. That's it. That's it.
1: That's all right. Very well done. (laughs) Bye. Bye.
0: Oh, baby, don't you know that I love you so? My heart starts rocking, I just need to go In your Barbie socks and your real tight sweater You look beautiful, you look so much better Than any other girl I've ever known Oh baby, don't you know that I love
1: you